Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 8, Grievances of the Nation. The Parlement of Paris has betrayed the people. Necker, the French messiah, has returned to champion their cause. As the Estates General drew closer, how the Estates General was to be comprised dominated the public debate. Instead of finding a clean solution to the dilemma, the government somehow made the whole thing worse. So without further ado, let's examine how they managed to do just that. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 8, Grievances of the Nation. When I was young, I loved watching the TV show Survivor. I'll be honest, I thought it was amazing television. For those of you that haven't watched the show, essentially 30-odd people are dropped on some random island or in some barren wasteland, and they live there for a few weeks. Every couple of days, the tribe votes someone off the island, and if you're lucky, you can win immunity briefly through some sort of physical or mental challenge. Why you would put yourself through this is more than just a cheap vacation. If you're the last one standing, you would win a bucket of cash money as well as 15 minutes of fame. To me, though, the most interesting aspect of Survivor wasn't the locations or the challenges or the crazy personalities. It was the alliance system. In Survivor, alliances would inevitably, almost instantaneously, spring into existence. Having allies was a necessity for survival. After all, provided you didn't get bitten by a snake or attacked by a drop bear, the only way you were going to lose said bucket of cash money was being voted out of the tribe. But while alliances were necessary for one's survival, their destruction was necessary for one's victory. As the Allies became a bigger and bigger proportion of the remaining tribe, having voted everyone else off, people began to form new alliances. After all, the original pact may have had six people in it, but only one could win. Thus, the alliance system was only ever temporary. It served a means to an end. It got its members one step closer to their objective, an objective that only one of them could achieve. The breakdown of alliances and the formation of new ones was thus a key aspect of the game. Allies became enemies, enemies became allies. At this point in the French Revolution, it's time to shake up the alliance system. The declaration of the Paris Parlement on the 25th of September 1788 was akin to a public renouncement of the Parlement's alliance with the Third Estate. By proclaiming the Estates General should sit as it had in 1614, and thus denying both voting by head and the doubling of the Third's representatives, the announcement was akin to voting the Third Estate out of the tribe. Was akin to voting them off the island. Unfortunately though for the Parlement, the Third Estate, representing some 98% of the nation, had de facto immunity. 
it's pretty damn hard to evict 98% of a tribe. In reality, the treacherous aristocrats in the Paris Parlement had merely voted themselves off the island. They would pay a price for their treachery. With such a dramatic and public split amongst the opposition to the crown, one can ask the question, why did the Parlement make this declaration? Well, prior to August, there was no point arguing about how the estates should be constituted, as the estates hadn't been summoned. It was fruitless to argue over something that wasn't even an issue yet. And so what this meant was that the Conservatives in the Paris Parlement could work in conjunction with their radical colleagues, and indeed the Third Estate more broadly. Once the Estates General had been announced, however, the former allies were destined to become enemies. The aims of both groups were simply incompatible. The Conservatives, led in part by D'Esprit Menil, wanted to use the Estates General as a means of empowering the nobility. They sought to return the aristocracy to the good old days before Louis XIV had crystallised royal absolutism as the norm for French government. Their goal was to place the levers of power back into the responsible hands of the blue-blooded nobility. To keep power from the people, while simultaneously taking power from the king. Through the Estates General, the Conservatives believed that the privilege could govern the country once more, and in a manner which would safeguard their own interests. This objective was fundamentally at odds with the protector of the people persona the Parlement had been fostering for so long. But it was only after the Vassil Assembly had occurred and the Estates General had been summoned that the Conservatives of the Parlement had to reveal their true desires. Unfortunately for the Parlement, it would not be as simple as just proclaiming their intentions. In the summoning of the Estates General, the Parlements had indeed scored a victory. But was the victory really theirs? Was it not the masses? who had caused so much civil disobedience that the country was on the brink of anarchy? Was it not the masses who saved the Parlement of Grenoble and held the Vassil Assembly, literally a miniature Estates General? Was it not the masses who forced the King's hand to call a national Estates General? Was it not the masses who had driven Brienne out of office and secured the return of the Messiah Swiss wonderboy Jacques Necker? Was it not the masses, who were really setting the revolutionary agenda here. Over the summer of 1788, the people had hijacked a year-long aristocratic revolt and transformed it into a general one. In doing so, it became clear to the Conservatives that their victory in having an estate summoned may not have been a glorious one as much as a fearic one. With double representation for the third, and voting by head being demanded by the press, just as the Facil Assembly had done, the Conservatives dreaded a potential outcome that looked increasingly likely, that they would no longer control the Estates General. Dominated by commoners, the Estates might move to address the bankruptcy in a way unthinkable to the Conservative nobility of the Parlement, specifically by removing their taxation exemptions. But the question was, would that new Estates General stop there? Could it not abolish more privileges? Could it not abolish privileges in general? Could it not replace the parlements? Could it not redefine the preeminent status of nobility in society? The rising power of the Third Estate had to be checked, and so the Parlement rested on the authority of tradition as it made its grand announcement on the 25th of September. Its announcement that the coming Estates General would sit as it had in 1614. Unfortunately for the Conservatives, once they realised power was slipping from their hands, once they realised they were no longer in control of the agenda, it was debatably too late. They had unleashed the monster which would devour them. Opposition to a traditional Estates General was not always guaranteed. 
Had an Estates General been agreed to a year before, when Cologne first hit roadblocks with the Notables, or when Brienne took office, perhaps the Commons would have allowed an Estates General to sit as it had traditionally done. The Parlement may have been able to make a similar decoration, and perhaps, just perhaps, all would have gone over smoothly. But an Estates General had not been agreed to then. Instead, it had been agreed to only after Brienne and the government fought it for more than a year after the government's policies had ensured civil unrest gripped the kingdom. And that unrest had consequences. Over the summer of 1788, as the government battled the Parlement, the Third Estate had become increasingly politicised. And there were two key drivers for this. The first was the Facile Assembly, and the second was the radicalisation and the growth of the free press. On the first point, the Estates of Dauphine had acted as a forerunner for a truly national body. It was an Estates General that allowed voting by head, an Estates General that was not dominated by the nobility and had the Third's representatives doubled in number. The Facile Assembly acted as an example of what could be achieved. Through its existence, through its composition and through its proclamations, the Assembly served to increase the speed of the politicalisation of the populace. No longer would the French have to look west to America for examples of good government, government by the people, for the people, It could now look south, within its own lands, to the Dauphine as well. The Vassil Assembly encouraged the people to push for a transformed national estates general, one that would vote by head and one that would see the commons represented properly. Through this new format, the third believed it could rectify all the woes of the nation. By the time the Parlement sought to ignore the Vassil Assembly and called for the traditional format of the estates general, the public had already determined that the traditional format would be insufficient for the needs of the nation. They had determined that such a format should be relegated to the past. The second key driver of the politicalisation of the masses was the press. Through the summer of 1788, censorship was almost non-existent, and this facilitated the Third Estate's engagement with the political debate. Notions of the nation, citizenship, treason, all began to appear more prominently, Calls against tyranny and ministerial despotism were frequent too, these being the initial watchwords of resistance when the Parlement sought to inspire the people to come to their defence against Brienne and Lemoyne. This never-ending stream of political publications, pamphlets, newspapers and journals showered the French people with political activism, and such a revolution of the press reinforced the status quo as being untenable. Of course, this wouldn't have mattered anywhere near as much if no one could read. But literacy rates in French cities were actually relatively high in the 1780s, at least at a basic level. Roughly two-thirds of the salaried workers in Paris could read at a rudimentary level, and perhaps surprisingly for the period, but helping to explain key political events in the coming years, female literacy rates were only slightly less. Historian Jay Boscher notes the looseness of the censorship situation. The censorship of the period was light by the standards of earlier kings. Extremely light by the authoritarian standards of the Roman Catholic Church or the communist dictatorships of later times, or indeed of the despots who ruled most of 18th century Europe, the Crown made only half-hearted attempts to stifle or to direct public debate. That lack of censorship was driving the ongoing politicalisation of the populace, and it was not just in the cities. The countryside, where the majority of people lived, had literacy rates which were drastically lower than the ones in the cities, but that didn't mean that the press wasn't influential there as well. As a result of poorer literacy rates, political illustrations became prominent. In these drawings, you can see, without a shadow of a doubt, the 
tensions bubbling away between the third estate and the two privileged orders, between the nation and the parasites living off the host. These depictions became increasingly prominent once the Parlement of Paris had broken ranks and betrayed the people on the 25th of September, 1788. In saying that, such depictions were circulating prior to the Paris Parlement's abrupt betrayal of the commons. These political illustrations showed nothing but contempt. Depictions of shackled men carrying wealthy nobles and bishops, depictions of gluttonous aristocrats feasting while peasants starved, depictions of nobles oppressing the common man with long outdated rights and brute force. These depictions may have differed in form, but the message? The message was the same. The third estate was the nation. The two privileged daughters were not. These publications were laying down the ideological groundwork for the chaos to come. For as they helped the third estate form an identity, that is, of being the nation, they also solidified the identity of the other two orders. Parasitic identities, traitorous identities, identities that suggested they should be purged, crushed, exiled, exterminated. And that is exactly what the third estate would try to achieve in the years to come. The transformation that French society had undergone in 1788 was significant. The Englishman Arthur Young, who was still travelling France studying agricultural practices, noted this in his diary. On the 22nd of September, just three days before the Paris Parlement would make their grand announcement, Young noted the following. Nantes is as inflamed in the cause of liberty as any town in France can be. The conversations I witness here prove how great a change is effected in the minds of the French, nor do I believe it is possible for the present government to last half a century longer, unless the clearest and most decided talents are at the helm. The American Revolution has laid down the foundation of another in France, if government does not take care of itself. Arthur Young predicts the present government won't last half a century without radical change. He predicts it won't last 50 years. The old regime won't even last 50 weeks. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. While all this debate raged, while all this politicalization of the masses occurred, the man now running the show had to figure out what to do. That man being Jacques Necker. Necker, who had returned to office late August, was faced with a very different country to the one he departed back in 1781. The situation in the cities, in the provinces and in the countryside was going from bad to worse. Increasingly, the nation was a combination of ungovernable, unpredictable and uncivilised. In his first few weeks in office, the people of Paris had burnt down six guardhouses. Not content with the destruction of public property and governmental power, crowds had forced the guards to watch after they were compelled to throw their weapons, clothes and personal effects into the flames. It would only be a slight exaggeration to suggest that the nation was teetering on the brink of anarchy. Luckily, Jacques Necker, the people's champion, was back in charge. And if the celebrations on the streets couldn't tell you that, then perhaps the flow of credit could. 
In one of his last acts in office, Brienne had essentially started to pay bondholders with paper money, a desperate attempt to keep the government afloat. Without money, troops could not be paid, and without the troops deployed in both the cities and the countryside, anarchy would have indeed reigned supreme. An inability to pay troops would have equated to an inability to govern. Thus, on the 16th of August, Brienne had no choice but to enact what were, in a sense, forced loans. Necker's return less than two weeks later brought the government time. Credit immediately spiked, and his reputation as a banking wizard enabled him to tap liquidity that had hitherto been unavailable to the Crown. The public, who had resisted Brienne's paper money, accepted it from their champion with smiles and cheers. Yet Necker was no miracle worker. He was a very successful banker, but he was no messiah. Hell, even the last messiah could only turn water into wine. What Necker was trying to do was turn air into gold. What Necker needed was the Estates General. Once it had been installed, the body could ensure funds flowed continuously back into the French Treasury by levying new taxes and reforming the economy. Without the Estates General, Necker had no way of avoiding bankruptcy. With the body meeting in May 1789, Necker hoped to actually assemble the body sooner. There was just two problems. He would need to address two very important and very thorny questions. Should the Third Estate be doubled? And should the Estates General vote by order or vote by head? Of course, at this point in time, it's appropriate to ask a different and an even more simple question. Couldn't the King have answered those questions himself? Louis XVI was meant to be a monarch, after all, and an absolute one at that. With public opinion so firmly in favour of double representation and voting by head, surely the king could have announced as such, and the sheer will of the people would have guaranteed its implementation. It could be argued that such a move would have secured his place at the head of a peaceful revolution, gained some much-needed political capital, firmly plant Louis on side with the restless masses. History may have been different if he had, but Louis XVI was not a king who seized the initiative. More importantly, he was not a king who would openly embrace any idea that he perceived to be infringing on his right to rule absolutely. After all, the Assembly of Notables had been created to avoid the Parlement, which were only being avoided to circumvent calling in a States General. At every single moment thus far in his reign, King Louis played his cards in a manner which he thought protected royal absolutism. It was wishful thinking to believe that he could have seized the initiative and forced both the Dublin of the Third and voting by head. Such actions were against both his personality and his ideology. As a result, Necker was left to face the problem alone. Initially, Brienne's government had deliberately not announced which format the Estates General would sit in. Brienne wagered that ambiguity would drive a wedge between the Parlement and the public, and for once, his bet paid off. For a brief moment in the months that followed Necker's return, it looked like a new alliance was forming between the public and the king. All the calls of tyranny and ministerial despotism of the last several months were being assigned to Cologne, Brienne and Le Moignan. Increasingly in the eyes of the public, the king was a benevolent father figure, and their true enemy was not the monarchy, but ministerial despotism. The Parlement, once the people's saviours, were grouped alongside Cologne and Brienne as corrupt and self-interested parasites, all of whom were vermin who would seek to stop the nation, aka the Third Estate, from controlling the Estates General. By not answering the questions of the Third Estate's composition back in August, the government had succeeded in dividing the opposition by late September. But the question surrounding the Estates General's composition couldn't remain unanswered indefinitely. Sooner or later, the Crown would have to decide. 
how would the estates operate? As the public order and his credit once more started to deteriorate, Necker had to reach a conclusion quickly. Anarchy and bankruptcy loomed in a matter of weeks. The task, fit for a Hercules of banking, was so big that not even his own daughter was convinced Necker could do it. In a letter on the 4th of September, 1788, Necker's daughter, Madame de Stahl, wrote to Gustavus III, the King of Sweden. In other circumstances, I should have been pleased to inform your majesty of my father's appointment, but the ship is being placed in his hands so close to the rocks that even my boundless admiration is scarcely enough to give me confidence. Necker's own daughter struggled to believe her father, the people's messiah, the champion of France, could successfully navigate the challenges that laid ahead. She wasn't the only one. Others also realised that what was expected of Necker was beyond unreasonable. Daniel Halles, a senior British diplomat in Paris, wrote this regarding Brienne's resignation and the reinstalment of Necker. The resignation of the Archbishop has been followed by some circumstances not flattering to the administration of the prelate. On his leaving Versailles on Tuesday, the populace surrounded his carriage and insulted him with every reproachful edifice which they could bestow, and in the evening he was burnt in effigy at the Palace Dauphine in Paris. The public, in general, who have been rather licentious in their comments upon the conduct of the Archbishop while in office, has since let loose their whole rage against him, and the mischief under which the nation has grown of late is entirely ascribed to his arbitrary counsels and want of abilities in the management of affairs. It must indeed be confessed, as far as reliance can be placed upon those who have been chiefly employed of late in matters of finance, that he has portrayed the greatest insufficiency in that important branch of administration. But, if people, on one hand, have condemned the minister with some precipitation, the favour shown to the new one seems to be equally premature and exaggerated, a circumstance which perhaps ought not to be considered as altogether advantageous, since nothing less than miracles are now, daily, expected from him. When the bar is set that high, when miracles are expected daily, was Necker, a mere mortal, not destined to fail? Let's find out. The time has come for Necker, the miracle worker, the messiah of the French people, to conduct his first miracle. He would try to settle the debate around the Estates General, the debate which had enraged the Third Estate, and the debate which had brought the nation to the brink of chaos. Or more accurately, Necker would try to get someone else, to do it for him. Necker, for reasons still debated by historians, decided to play the card that worked so well for the monarchy the first time round. Necker summoned another assembly of notables. That's right, everybody, we're going back to the future. With the king indecisive and the parliament now loathed, the assembly was brought back. The assembly's new remit was to advise on how the estates general should be regulated. Despite a range of historical opinions on what Necker's plan really was, one thing seems to be agreed upon. Things didn't go to plan. Depending on which historian you read, the first assembly of notables had been one of two things. It was either extremely progressive or extremely self-interested. The first assembly of notables was either obstructionist because the notables were greedy or obstructionist because the notables felt Cologne's plans were insufficient or ill-conceived. In the second assembly of notables, the government received a body with an altogether different persona. Despite containing many of the same men who comprised the first assembly, the notables appeared to have gotten cold feet. 
Like the Parlement, who had grown weary and wary of the near-constant demonstrations and disorder produced by the Third, the notables in the Second Assembly were increasingly of the belief that the now politicised Third Estate might not be the virtuous, level-headed ally they once thought it to be. I wonder how many burnt guard towers the notables rode past as they left Paris for Versailles. Or maybe it was just a pamphlet seller on a street corner calling for the elimination of all the parasitic privileged orders. Such radical pamphlets were starting to pop up. Who knows? But whatever individual factors swayed the notables, the result was a clear one. The Assembly refused to endorse the doubling of the Third Estate and recommended the Estate's general vote as it had in 1614. Historian Francois Mignot summarises his perception of events. Opinion became daily more decided, and Necker, wishing yet fearing to satisfy it, and desirous of conciliating all orders, of obtaining general approbation, convoked a second assembly of notables on the 6th of November, 1788, to deliberate on the composition of the Estates General and the election of its members. He thought to induce it to accept the double representation of the Third Estate, but it refused, and he was obliged to decide, in spite of the notables, that which he had ought to have decided without them. According to Mignot, Necker desired the doubling of the Third Estate, and he summoned the notables to help him to justify doing just that. That narrative does make sense, at face value. He is, after all, the Messiah in the eyes of the people. Their support was the only reason he was returned from exile. And on top of all of that, he's one of them. Necker may have been a millionaire, but he wasn't a noble. Surely a commoner would have supported the cause of the commons. Surely he would have supported the cause of the Third Estate. It's a simple and convincing narrative, but clearly not convincing enough. Whether Necker supported the Third's cause, or just sought a resolution that would give him an Estates General and thus loans and taxes, is a matter of continuing historical debate. It's a matter of grey history. Contradicting historian Mignet and mainstream thought more broadly, historian Peter Ukruuptkin argues that the notables, in rejecting the pleas of the Third Estate, delivered Necker the result he was secretly hoping for. It was the general opinion in France that the Estates General, in which the three classes would be separately represented, the Third Estate ought to have twice as many members as the other two, and that voting should be by individuals. But Louis XVI and Necker were opposed to this, and even convoked a second assembly of notables on November 6, 1788, which would, they were sure, reject the doubling of the numbers of the Third Estate and the individual vote. This was exactly what happened, and in spite of that, public opinion had been so predisposed in favour of the Third Estate by the provincial assemblies that Necker and the court were obliged to give in. Mignet states Necker was on Team Third. Kruupton claims that Necker was on Team Nobility. Who knows which team he was really on? Maybe the people's hero was championing their interests? Maybe the people's hero, like the heroic Parlement before him, was actively sabotaging their agenda? Irrelevant of Necker's true intentions and desires, the outcome was the same. The notables resisted, and Necker doubled the third estate anyway. Why? One theory is that Necker was compelled by one of the greatest motivators in human history. Fear. Fear of what would happen if he didn't. For as the debate continued, as leaks of the assembly of notables found their way into the press, The demonstrations, the unruliness of the masses, the violent and revolutionary tone of the press had become even greater. Tensions rose when it became known that most of the princes of the blood had penned a letter to the king on December 5. 
Known as the Memoir of the Princes of the Blood, a majority of the king's brothers and cousins proclaimed the privileges of the aristocracy, complained about the freedom of the press, and argued that the Third Estate must cease its public disorder. It was in this environment that Necker was faced with a decision. Side with the Parlement, the Notables, the Princes, or side with the Third Estate. He chose the latter. Agreeing with historian Peter Kruutkin that Necker did not actually desire to double the third, historian John Dahlberg Acton explains his perception that Necker's actions were fueled by fear and fear alone. The agitation in the provinces and the explosion of pent-up feeling that followed the unlicensed printing of political tracts showed that public opinion had moved faster than that of the two great conservative bodies. It became urgent that the government should come to an early and resolute decision and should occupy ground that might be held against the surging democracy. Necker judged that the position would be impregnable if he stood upon the lines drawn by the notables, and he decided that the commons should be equal to either order singularly and not jointly to the two. In consultation with a statesman like Prelate, the Archbishop of Bordeaux, he drew up and printed a report, refusing the desired increase. But, as he sat anxiously, watching the winds and the tide, he began to doubt. And when letters came, warning him that the nobles would be butchered if their decision went in their favour, he took alarm. He said to his friends, now quoting Necker, If we do not multiply the commons by two, they will multiply themselves by ten. Back to Dolberg Acton. When the Archbishop saw him again at Christmas, Necker assured him that the government was no longer strong enough to resist the popular demand. Unable to resist, Necker, the miracle worker, reached a partial conclusion to his dilemma. On December the 27th, 1788, Necker announced that the Third Estate's representatives would be doubled in number. The Third Estate would have roughly 600 representatives, the First and Second Estate 300 each. The Commons had scored a significant victory. But it was a hollow victory if the Third Estate voted by order and not by head. Necker had made no declaration about how the body would vote. One bomb may have been diffused, but another was still ticking. Historian Charlie Matthews slams Necker for how he handled the situation. In nothing was the incompetence of Necker more clearly shown than his refusal to decide in advance whether the new body should vote by order as it had in 1614 or by member. A brutal critique for someone who was meant to be the messiah. Unfortunately for Necker, things didn't materially improve having answered the issue with the third's doubling. Like the Sith, it seemed that questions always came in two. Two questions continued to dog the government. The new question on everyone's mind was how would the delegates be elected to the Estates General? It was a good question. After all, if you control the ballot box, you control the vote. If you can control the voting registration and eligibility process, you can control the outcome. Facts that iconic Cold War dictators knew all too well. With no word from the government, the populace began making assumptions. Assumptions may generally be the mother of mistake, but in this case, assumptions was the mother of violence on the streets. Why? Well, one assumption was that the provincial estates, such as the Vassil Assembly, would elect delegates to the Estates General. Not every province had the right to summon a provincial estate, thanks to a patchwork of local customs and privileges. But for those that could, it merely resulted in a debate that was a microcosm of the one gripping the country at large. In local regions, the debate turned to how these provincial estates should be constituted, how their voting should occur, and should the third estate's delegation be doubled. 
And unlike the debate at a national level, which would have to be determined in Versailles and Paris, at a local level, one could influence the outcome of their local estate. How? Well, by simply picking up their sabre and pistol and storming their local town hall. As a result, these localised debates were often fought out in the streets. In Rennes, the violence that erupted between the nobles and the bourgeoisie was so bad that historian George Lebrev described the situation on January the 27th as civil war on the streets. This volatile environment gripped the country, and the Swiss journalist Malé Dupin wrote, The public debate has totally changed in its emphasis. Now the king, despotism and the constitution are only secondary questions, and has become a war between the third estate and the other two orders. That war, fought with both words and with steel, was spiralling out of control. The situation was getting worse as the Estates General approached. It was not getting better. Attempting to pacify the solution in the provinces, the government finally announced how elections would take place. Better late than never. You and I, or at least I, am quite familiar with how elections work. A bunch of people say pick me, and you pick one, and chances are you'll regret your decision in a short matter of time. The election for the Estates General, however, had an additional component. It's this component that I would like to end on, rather than the format of the elections themselves. While electing their delegates and deputies, the king asked his subjects to draw up a list of grievances. The result is that the hopes and desires of an entire nation can be found in more than 40,000 unique independent lists. These lists of grievances are fascinating. What makes them so interesting is that the government made a deliberate attempt not to influence their contents. As a result, we possess a snapshot of the collective minds of communities around the nation, and a snapshot that was taken just months before a monumental revolution commenced. It's very rare that we're offered such a detailed invitation into the minds of a populace that were on the verge of a revolution. And for that, history buffs everywhere are grateful. There was, of course, a practical reason for these lists, however. The Estates General would be able to use these lists of grievances, produced by all corners of the realm, to influence its agenda, to help it govern, and to establish just exactly what the people truly wanted, besides bread and circuses. In the Kayir, as they're known, you can see a combination of social and economic grievances, as well as a list of local and national issues. While the nobility's taxation privileges, feudal dues, and monopolies on some governmental offices were regularly targeted in the list of grievances, more local issues often prominently featured as well. Newly elected deputies, kahirs in hand, would be reminded that a local bridge hadn't been repaired in some time, or were implored to impose restrictions on dovecoats so that pigeons wouldn't eat all the seeds when the fields were sown. Even seemingly national issues such as taxation could be localised, Historian Edward Lowell notes that many complained that while the nation was overtaxed, their own community was enduring an even larger amount of taxation than it could bear. Economic and social concerns were not the only grievances listed in the Cahir, however. Political grievances were also voiced through these documents, and in venturing into the political, the people were challenging the foundations of the old regime, foundations which the events of the last year had already made dangerously weak. Those Cahir that didn't call for a constitution outright often called for one implicitly. They called for the Estates General to be convened regularly, for the trial of ministers who had acted illegally or in a despotic manner, and that taxation should be administered by newly created and elected local councils and municipal governments. Historian Edward Lyle describes just how political the cahiers of all three orders could be. 
It is a mistake to assume that the Frenchmen of 1789 cared chiefly for civil and social reforms and only incidentally for reforms of a political character. In most of the Cahiers, the political reforms are first mentioned and are as elaborately insisted on as any others. If there is any difference in this respect among the orders, it is that the nobility are more urgent for the political part of the program than either the clergy or the third estate. The priests were much occupied with their own affairs. The peasantry were thinking of the hardships they suffered. But all intelligent men felt that social and economic reforms would be unstable unless adequate political reforms were made also. The deputies of the three orders were in many cases instructed not to consider questions of state debt or taxation until the proposed constitution had been adopted. These calls for political reform, for a constitution, inevitably infringed on the king's authority. King Louis had not surrendered his conviction that a king ruled by divine right and that he should rule with absolute power. The contents of the Cahiers was thus ammunition for those arguing against the Estates General voting by head. The traditionalists pointed to the radical agenda the masses were planning. Yet, for all their talk of constitution and reform, the Cahiers were a much more conservative document than they might sound. They were certainly far more conservative than the political publications, pamphlets and newspapers which had been circulating since the Facile Assembly. Many historians note the praise of both the king and the monarchy. Lacking uniformed hostility towards the old regime, it appears that the people were inclined more towards reform than revolution. Historian Robert Johnson, noting just how popular the king remained amongst the common people, goes as far to claim that The illusion of Bourbonism was at that moment, so far as surface appearances went, practically untouched. Untouched. That's probably a bit of a stretch. Historian Francois Mignet proclaimed absolutism dead once the Comte de Rendoux had been released nearly a decade before the events we're talking about. But as touched or as untouched as absolutism may have been, these lists had unintended consequences. Despite praising the king and the monarchy, these lists of grievances would come to haunt royal authority in just a few months' time. An unintended erosion of royal power occurred as a direct result of the symbolism of these lists of grievances. Through the lists, the people, in their eyes, had told the king their problems. A benevolent ruler, a father figure, a kind and generous man, they felt that King Louis would have unquestionably acted to address their concerns and to ease their burdens. Thus, when inaction was the only thing to come from these lists, poorer members of the Third Estate assumed that it was not because the king did not care, but because corruption in his government was preventing his remedies. It was a logical conclusion, then, that they themselves would have to administer the remedy. In the coming months, the disorder that had recently plagued the urban communities of France would infiltrate the countryside. It would do so in a scale yet unseen. But that time had not yet come. Royal authority was still, to an extent, prevailing throughout France. The peasants needed a sign from Paris, a sign that now was the time to act, that now was the time to remedy those grievances. That signal would occur on the 14th of July, 1789, and that day was only a few months away. Thank you for listening to Episode 8, Grievances of the Nation. Next episode, the time has finally come. The time has finally arrived for the Estates General. Not only the Estates General, however, the next episode will also be covering famine, 
starvation, and one of the bloodiest days of the revolution which unfolds in the streets of Paris. We'll introduce a new champion of the people and the factions which will come to dominate the Estates General. Before you go, however, if you like Grey History, if you're keen for some more, then there is something you can do to help that cause. Anyone who you think might enjoy a history podcast that explores the Grey, please tell them about Grey History and spread the word. A show for a tell, that's all I ask. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.